God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And He's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that He conquered death. We believe in the resurrection. And He's coming back again. We believe. Hey, church. Well, we're back at it again. Here I am on another video. I gotta be honest. I'm happy to provide these videos. I hope and pray that they've been helpful, that they provided um, some form of normalcy in these crazy times. But I gotta be honest, I am antsy. I am eager to gather once again with you all. I miss singing together, corporate worship. Man, I, I miss that. I long for that. Um, I long to see all your faces out in the audience as we're unpacking the Word of God together and not preaching to a, an empty room, right? I, I'm, I'm eager to gather together again. Now, I don't want to grumble here, but I just wanted to express my desire. And I'm sure you're already praying for this, but just in case you're not, would you please join me in praying for a quick end to all of this social distancing that we're, we're doing right now? Um, Let's not, let's not end it before we need to, but I'm praying, I'm inviting you to pray with me that we can get back into a little bit of normalcy where we can gather together face to face. I'm not sure if you knew this or not, but part of the reason that you and I are experiencing a little bit of what people are calling the stir craziness or whatever is because we were created in an image, in the image of a relational God. We're created in God's image, which means we're created to be relational beings. We're created to have physical relationships with others. Now, fellas, I'm not, I'm not talking about sex here. I'm talking about a whole lot more than that. I'm talking about the fact that you and I have physical bodies, that we have senses, that we eat and sleep, that we can touch and feel. Praise God that we can taste right? I'm about to grill up some steaks tonight for my father-in-law's birthday. I'm looking forward to that because I love how it tastes. God's given us the abilities, the senses. He's created us as physical beings to enjoy his created world. He's given us a soul and a physical body. You and I were created to be in physical connection with one another, to see one another face to face, to be able to interact with one another, to give one another a hug or a pat on the back or a firm handshake. That's part of the reason why so many of us are feeling stir crazy. It's because we've been created to have real relationships. Now I'm thankful for Zoom, I'm thankful for YouTube and, and the ability to put videos on, on Facebook and the internet and all of that stuff. I'm thankful for that. I don't want to diminish it. But we cannot for any second begin to believe that virtual reality is the same thing or a substitute for reality. It might be a decent bridge in the time from when we can't gather together to when we're gathering again, but it's never going to be the norm because you and I need physical contact. We need to see one another face to face. So while Zoom and, and video conferencing might be a fine stand-in, it's not a substitute. That's why we long, we're longing to gather together is because we're created for physical interaction. 
And in lines of where we're headed this morning, we were created for physical inter interaction. Because of that, it's why death and disease is so offensive to us. Disease, this virus is offensive to us. It's terrible to us because it's causing divisions in our relationship, right? We're told that one of the best ways that we can fight this thing is stay home, which if I'm honest, kind of feels like we're not doing anything. I kind of wonder sometimes, are we even doing anything, right? It makes me question things, but that's what the medical people are telling us. And so they're asking us the best way to fight is, is to do nothing and to keep our distance. This disease, this virus is, is causing separation. And I don't like it. I'm sure you don't like it either. Now, that's, that's one form of, of uh, disease that causes separation, the virus, social distancing, all of that. But there are many others. Alzheimer's is a terrible thing. It robs people of their memories. Spouses forget one another. It causes division, separation, and relationship. If you've known anyone who's experienced ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, it's horrible. It basically imprisons you in your body and strips you of all your senses so you can't interact and communicate with the people that you love, that you're close to, until finally you eventually die. It's, it's horrible. It's horrible. Cancer, other viruses, all kinds of debilitating diseases, they separate us either in quarantine or eventually they separate us through death. And this separation, this division, it is not natural. It is not what we were created for. It's not what we were created to experience. And this church is why so many of us don't like going to nursing homes. I don't know about you, but nursing homes are really hard for me. They're hard for me. Obviously, I, I enjoy meeting with the folks that are, that are there, talking to them, fellowshipping. I, obviously, I enjoy that, that part of it. Um, I think we should care for our elderly folks. Um, I'm not against nursing homes. Sometimes that's the best place, safest place for the people that we love who are aging for them to be. But if I'm honest with you, when I go to nursing homes, I get angry. I get angry because of what nursing homes communicate to my soul while I'm there. I'm never more aware of the world's brokenness than when I'm in one of those places. I'm never more acutely reminded that this is not the way that things are supposed to be, right? I get angry. I get angry at sin. It's, it's effects on our world. And I get frustrated. I get frustrated because I realize that this is where I'm headed. This is where we're all headed. It doesn't matter what your bank account says. It doesn't matter how pretty you are, how smart you are. We're all headed to the same place. Death is coming after us all, right? The great sleep, the great separation of our souls from our physical bodies was never supposed to be that way. Now, I recognize for those of us that have trusted in Christ, we've repented, we've expressed faith in Jesus, I realize that we have the hope of resurrection. We don't grieve death or even fear death as ones who, who live without hope because if we or if our loved ones have followed Jesus, we will see one another again, and we take heart in that. But as a gentleman that I read this past week, Matthew Emerson, he has a book on Holy Saturday, he says that, that we have two realities to face in the meantime. We can look forward to the future resurrection at the second coming of Jesus. That gives us hope. That excites us. But Holy Saturday has something a little more immediate for us to hope in. What Christ did while he was on the cross finished and accomplished the work that was required to save us. 
And then he went to the tomb. He was dead and buried. And what I want to talk about with you today is what Christ accomplished while his body was in the tomb. And I think it will give us some hope to give to people beyond just the hope of resurrection. That's awesome. But I think what happened as we unpack it from the scriptures while Jesus' body was in the tomb gives us a more immediate hope, something tangible to cling on to while we're in the, the uh, not yet phase of this world, right? Jesus came and he died and he rose to new life and he ascended into the heaven and it says he's coming back again, but he's not here yet. So the new heavens and the new earth, they're not yet inaugurated. There's a lot that he accomplished that we can experience now, but we still have to contend with sin. We still have to contend with death. And so I hope that today as we look at what happened on Holy Saturday, we can grasp a hold of a a new hope. Not a better hope, but a more immediate hope that we can speak to our friends that are grieving the loss of someone that they loved or people that are wondering whether or not God is active because as they look out on the world, he seems silent. Seems like he's still in the tomb, right? So that's what we're going to unpack today together. Now, if you grew up in a Lutheran church or the Catholic church, you might know a little bit already what Holy Saturday is. But if you're like me, it might be a newer concept. Holy Saturday is the day before Easter. Technically, on the church calendar, this coming Sunday is Palm Sunday. But we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Pastor Wes unpacked that. We've been going through the Holy Week, the last days of Jesus' life. And Holy Saturday is the day after Jesus is crucified, the day before the resurrection. It's where Christians throughout history have celebrated and remembered Christ's death and his burial. Now, Most of us are pretty quick, especially in the evangelical world, we're pretty quick to jump from the crucifixion right to the resurrection. And I understand why. The resurrection is a huge deal. It's a huge deal, right? Without the resurrection, Good Friday wouldn't be good. And Christ's death and burial would have been like every other death and burial of every other holy man that's ever lived and died and then stayed dead. So we rightfully focus a lot of attention on resurrection. But I think in skipping over too quickly Christ's death and his burial, I think we miss something very important. Although the facts of Christ's burial might just seem like the necessary steps along the path to resurrection, I've come to see this week as I've studied that there's a whole lot more going on. And it might be behind the scenes. It might even be invisible to us. But... I'm increasingly convinced that it's not arbitrary that Jesus spent three days rather than three hours or three minutes or or no time at all in the tomb. So I want to read with you a bit from Scripture, picking up in Matthew 27, where we left off last week. And I want to ask the question, what exactly happened in the three days that Jesus' body was in the tomb? So let's read the text together. Matthew 27, verses 57 through 66. They say this, as evening approached, there came a rich, rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. And going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus's body, and Pilate ordered that it be given him. Joseph took the body 
He wrapped it in clean linen and he placed it in his own tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, he said, after three days, I'll rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples, they might come and steal the body and tell people that he's been raised from the dead. And this last deception would be worse than the first. And so Pilate said, Take a guard, go and make the tomb secure, and as you know how, or make, go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting guards. So we know what's happening in the world at this time because it's been documented in all four of the Gospels. Jesus' body is laid in a wealthy man's tomb, which was prophesied. In Isaiah 53, it says, He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. We see some fulfilled prophecy here. Now, that's encouraging, but the whole events of this past day and a half must have been a crushing blow to Jesus' followers. We have the luxury of hindsight. We know resurrection is right around the corner, right? They didn't know that. They should have known. Jesus told them as much, but they didn't. And so where are the disciples at this time? They're hiding. They're cowering in fear. They're grieving the loss of their friend and the man who claimed to be God. And the women, the women are going through the normal burial rituals, right? Preparing the body just as they would with anyone else who had died before. They thought they'd lost. God, the mission, the movement, it was dead. And so was their hope of revolution, of redemption, salvation. To them, from their perspective, it seemed that God had left them. That God had given up on them. It seemed as if God was nowhere to be found. The one who claimed to be God, his body was laying lifeless in a tomb. So the disciples are defeated. They're cowering in fear, believing that God has left them. All their hopes are dashed, destroyed. Along with that, we also know that the Pharisees are concerned. I'm not really sure why. They don't know these guys very well. They don't know they're cowering in fear. They think, I think, a little more highly of the disciples than the disciples thought of themselves. They're worried that they're going to show up and try and steal Jesus' body, right? Because Jesus had told these scoundrels, He told these scoundrels earlier that he was going to raise to new life. Jesus told them that. So for that context, we got to jump over to Matthew 12. Matthew 12 verses 38 through 40 states that some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we, we want to see a sign from you. You're claiming to be God. Show us a sign. Do something for us. And Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So we know what happened 
here on the earth while Jesus' body was in the tomb. From humanity's perspective, it seemed as if God was gone. It seemed as if all hope was lost. But just as was the case in the days of Esther, just because we can't see God, it doesn't mean he's not hard at work. The name of God is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther. In fact, there are many scholars and theologians over the years who question whether that book should even be in the Bible because God's not mentioned. But if you go read Esther, it is impossible to miss that although God is not in your face, present in in that book, he is active in the shadows. There is It is undeniable that the fingerprints of God are all over that story, working in the shadows. He's invisible, but he is hard at work. That, my friends, is exactly what is happening here. Jesus is separated from his body. He experienced death like you and I will if we die before he comes back. His soul was separated from his physical body. And by what he told the Pharisees about the sign of Jonah, we can discover where it is that his soul went. In Matthew 12, Jesus calls it the heart of the earth. Along with that statement, we have some other really helpful biblical texts that fill in what exactly is going on here. And bear with me, we got to do a little, little heavy lifting theologically, but We'll circle around back and unpack all of what it means. So along with Matthew 12, we have Luke 23, verse 43. And and that's where Jesus is speaking to the repentant thief on the cross. What does he say to him? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. And then in Acts 2, Peter is preaching to the crowds at Pentecost. And he he reads Psalm 16 and he, he indicates that that psalm, Psalm 16, is prophetic. It points to Jesus It's a prophecy that speaks about the Messiah's soul being in Hades or in the realm of the dead. It speaks of his body being in the grave. Along with that, we have Ephesians 4, 9. It calls the place of the dead. It says that Christ descended to the lower regions of the earth. In Romans 10, 7, it refers to this place, the place of the dead, as the abyss, the place where Christ descended. And then in 1 Peter 3, there's a really hotly debated passage, a lot of different takes on it, that speaks about Christ after his death going to the prison where the fallen angels are kept and proclaiming to those disobedient spirits. And then lastly, in Revelation 1.18, Jesus tells the apostle John, he says, I'm the living one. I was dead, now look. I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, I realize that was a lot of scripture there, but we, we, we got to do some theological heavy lifting here. And to do that, we have to bring in a wide variety of texts together to try and answer where was Jesus and what was he doing while his body lie in the grave? So I gave you those references because I want you to know I'm not trying to speculate here just out of my own mind. I'm trying to interpret Scripture to the best of my ability and unpack what happened while Jesus' body lay in the tomb. I want to do that from a biblical standpoint, right? Along with these Bible verses, the last reference I want to give you is the Apostles' Creed. Now you may, you may have grown up in a church where you recited the Apostles' Creed often. We don't 
recite it here corporately as in a call and response, but we do sing it occasionally in kind of an updated form. There's a Hillsong song called uh, This I Believe, or it's the Apostles' Creed set to music, essentially. So we sing it sometimes. But the, Apostle, the Apostles' Creed reflects the core tenets of the Christian faith that have been held by faithful believers across most of church history. The creed is as follows. Now, I love that video. I think it does a great job of capturing why creeds are so cool. That shared body of beliefs unites believers across time, across race, across geography. But as you listen, I'm sure that there might have been a line in there that maybe some of you got hung up on a little bit. It gets me every time when I read through the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again. We don't have a problem with the rising again, but what does it mean that he descended into hell? There's an updated version of the creed that most Reformed churches use. It says that Christ descended to the dead. I think that's more accurate and more helpful by by what we're going to unpack here a little bit. But before we unpack that, I want to let you know creeds are not the Bible, right? We are Protestant evangelicals here at Crossroads. We live and die by Scripture. Scripture alone is what we stand upon, what we look to for truth. But we can't just throw out all the creeds. I think the creeds are helpful. They're helpful. I've heard it said for us, the Bible is the sun and creeds are like the moon. They reflect the truths of Scripture back to us. They can serve as a guide and a a helpful check against our interpretations to make sure we're not going off in crazy directions, right? That over the history of the church, this is how people normally have interpreted these Scriptures. The creeds are subject to Scripture, but as to the extent that creeds like this one here, the Apostles' Creed, uphold the truths of Scripture, I think they can be really helpful. So in light of the scriptures that I've given, and in light of the Apostles' Creed, where did Jesus go when he died? Here's my best interpretation of the verses and the evidence that I've compiled for you to reference. I believe that Jesus experienced death as you and I will. I think he knows what it's like not just to live, but also to die. I think he knows what it's like to be absent from a physical body, to have his soul separated from his physical body in death. Now, contrary to what Catholic doctrine is, I can find no scriptural support for purgatory or for what has come to be known as the harrowing of hell. Some would argue that that Jesus' suffering continued from the cross, that he went from the cross down to hell where he was tormented and did battle with Satan. I believe this is an incorrect and unbiblical idea. I can't find any support for that in Scripture. But I think if we use our Bible and church history as our guide, I think we discover something better than some cosmic battle between Christ and Satan in hell. I think Jesus did indeed suffer and die on the cross. We're told as much. But if you remember from last week, as Christ willingly gave up his spirit, what did he say? In John, he exclaimed, It is finished. It's finished. What Christ meant by this was that his humiliation was complete and his exaltation was beginning. All that was necessary to purchase your forgiveness and my forgiveness was complete 
Jesus was our substitute on the cross. He stood in our place. He received the full penalty for our sins. The full, infinite, and eternal wrath of God was upon him because he is fully God and fully man. He could, he's the only person that could have bore the infinite, eternal wrath of God. And he did on the cross. He was crushed. The penalty for our sins was paid. Forgiveness was achieved. It was finished. On the cross, because Christ was both fully man and fully God, he experienced the full wrath of God as only an infinite being could. However, that mysteriously worked itself out. Upon his death, Christ was able to say, to declare emphatically, it is finished, which means the crucifixion was the end of Christ's suffering and humiliation. The work that needed to be done in order to recreate, to usher in the new covenant, the new creation, it was complete. And so Christ rested in his death on the seventh day in the grave, just as God rested in Genesis after he finished the work of his creation. Christ was buried and his soul departed his body. He experienced all of what it means to be human. He experienced death as you and I will. His soul went to where souls used to go when people died. Now, I think it's helpful here to show you a diagram. This is kind of how the ancient Jews and Second Temple uh, Jews during Jesus' day thought about our cosmos. In the ancient Near East and the Old Testament, people spoke of the universe, the cosmos, existing in, in a three-tiered way. Folks in Bible times held to a three-tiered view of the cosmos. They believed, and I think we can believe with them, that there is heaven, that's the realm of God, then there's this world, and then there's the place of the dead, which the Old Testament often referred to as Sheol. Beyond this, when these ancient believers thought of the place of the dead, or what they referred to as Sheol, they thought of it existing in three compartments. There was paradise, which was often referred to as Abraham's bosom from Luke 16, where the righteous ones who hoped in the coming Messiah, they went there to paradise. And there's also a place for the wicked. That was referred to generally as Sheol or, or Hades or even Gehenna. And then there's a third place, the prison for the fallen angels, some kind, sometimes called Tartarus. Now, in Luke 16, Jesus tells us a parable about this wicked rich guy who dies and goes to the place of the dead. And also about a righteous poor man who also dies and goes to that same place. But the, the rich wicked guy is in the, black, the bad part of Sheol. And the poor righteous guy is in Abraham's bosom or the place where the righteous went. The paradise place. These two places exist in the same location, except they're separated by a very large chasm. But apparently, they can talk across it to one another. Now, it is my opinion, but I think it's a biblically informed one, that upon Christ's death, his soul went to this place of paradise, which was located in the place of the dead. And I believe he went there as fully God and fully man to declare victory. I think he proclaimed victory to the Old Testament saints who were looking forward to his coming. He declared victory to them. And as he was declaring victory to them, the wicked, the fallen angels, overheard. They overheard that Christ had won, that death no longer had any power. 
You see, until Christ's atoning death on the cross, death had dominion over this place. People couldn't escape it. It had the final say, or at least thought it did. Even though the righteous were in paradise, they were there in a disembodied existence. They were conscious, but disembodied. They were existing in a way that is less than God intended for human beings to exist. Remember, he created us to be physical beings. When Jesus raises to new life, when he's resurrected, what is one of the first things that he does? He says, I'm hungry. You guys got any breakfast? And he has breakfast with his disciples. Being a physical embodied soul is how God intends for us to experience life. So I believe that Jesus' body is laid in the tomb and that his soul shows up in Sheol, the place of the dead, to announce victory. He's taking a victory lap, right? Death thought, it had it, death thought that it had the final say. And it did have power because believers could not be in the presence of God until sin was dealt with on the cross. But now Christ says, it's finished. I've dealt with your sin <coughs> because of our good shepherd, because he's walked through the shadow, the shadow of the valley of death. He declares to the Old Testament saints that are held captive in that place that they can now go with Christ when he raises to be with God in heaven. And this is, I think, what Ephesians 4.9 and Revelation 1.18 seem to support. In Ephesians 4, it says Jesus led the captives out of the place of the dead. He was able to do that because we're told in Revelation 1.18 that he took the keys of death and Hades back. Well, this act... This dissension, Christ descending into the place of the dead, it liberates the saints of the Old Testament, but it seals the fate of the wicked. Now, all will be raised in the second coming, but only the righteous will be raised to new life. The, the wicked will be raised for the second death. For those who care, I think this sheds a little bit of light onto Revelation 20, which is sort of a tricky thing. Now, I don't know about you, um, I found this study incredibly fascinating and helpful, but I don't want to just inform you all of interesting facts or ideas. I want to answer this question, why does it matter? So what? So what that Christ descended to where the, the souls of the dead used to go. So what? Why does it matter that Jesus died and went to the place of the dead? Why does it matter that Jesus play, proclaimed victory to the captive saints and victory over death and Satan and the wicked, disobedient people that are held in Hades? Why does any of this matter? Well, first of all, I think it tells us something about our God. When the disciples thought that all was lost, when from their perspective, God was dead and silent, that couldn't have been farther from the truth. God was working some serious good behind the scenes in the spiritual world. Just as in the days of Joseph, when what wicked men and spirits intended for evil, God was using for tremendous good. While his friends and followers, while Jesus' friends and followers were grieving, while they were grieving his death, Jesus was active. He was leading the righteous captives out of the places of the dead. He was leading the, the righteous captives out of the place of the dead into the presence of God in heaven. I seem to remember Jesus saying something about the gates of hell will not stand against him, right? Come on, that is boss. That's amazing. Jesus stormed the place of the dead and he declared over death and Hades, you got something that belongs to me and I'm taking it. 
He kicked down the doors of the land of forgetfulness that's talked about in in, uh, Psalms 88. He took back those whom he had purchased on the cross. Let's go. That is awesome. This is not a meek and mild Jesus. That's our conquering king. Death has got nothing on him. Folks, this ought to get you jacked up. Right now, you might feel like the disciples. You might. You might be cowering in fear because of this virus. You might be scared about the future of our economy. These are crazy times, uncertain times. You might feel like God has abandoned us, like the church has abandoned you. You may feel that way. You might feel like there isn't any hope left. But let the burial of Jesus encourage you. When his body lay on that stone behind that giant rock laid in front of the tomb, Jesus was on a victory lap in the place of the dead. He was declaring that there is no place in heaven or on earth or under the earth that was not affected by his willing sacrifice on the cross. He was declaring victory over death, victory over the earth, victory in heaven. Jesus was going throughout his created world, that which is seen, that which is unseen, and letting everyone and everything know that the king has arrived and he's conquered. Man, that's good. While the disciples thought that all was lost, while they were living in fear, they felt as if God was gone. Jesus was doing work. He was kicking down the doors of death, taking names. Come on. You might feel like God is gone, but he is not. Take that to the bank. God is working in the shadows. He's doing work for his glory and for the joy of those who've trusted in him. We might not be able to see that work right now, but it's happening. Jesus is alive and he's active. He's working all things together for the good of those he's called according to his purposes. Along with that, as the book of Hebrews emphatically declares, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weakness. Jesus knows what it's like to look death in the face. He knows what it's like to die and to stay dead. He knows what it's like to experience soul separation from our physical bodies. And now, because he's led the captives with him to heaven, when we die and anyone else dies that has trusted in Christ with faith and repentance, we don't have to go to Abraham's bosom right? We don't have to go to a place that sits next to the place of torment. No, now when we die, we get to be present with the risen Lord. For those of you who've lost loved ones in Christ, know that they are with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, for to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our loved ones who have gone before us in Christ, they are awake They are conscious. They are experiencing the joy of being able to talk with Jesus and fellowship with the saints. Now, however, as good as heaven is right now for those saints, they, just like us, are awaiting something even better. Just as Jesus made good on his promise not to let his holy ones remain in the place of the dead, he rescued them from that temporary paradise. And he brought them to a better promised land with him in heaven. And in the same way, there is still yet a better place 
that is to come. Heaven is good, but one day, Jesus is going to bring heaven here on earth. Listen, Jesus died. He went to the place of the dead, but he didn't stay dead. He stormed the gates of hell and he took what belonged to him. He took the keys of death and Hades. Then he ascended into heaven with the righteous captives and one day he's coming back again. And when he does, you and I and all those who've died before us are going with him to our final resting place. He's coming back to take those of faith to the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth where you and I will live with real physical bodies where we will enjoy feasting, amen to that, right? Feasting in heaven, face-to-face fellowship with God and our fellow believers. And to that end, I say, and you should say with me, come Lord Jesus. Finally, the last note I want to make on this, Holy Saturday instructs us of the reality of hell. There is a place for the wicked, They're being kept right now in a place ain't nobody want to be at. They're being kept for the day of judgment where they too will be raised to life, but not new and eternal life with God. No, their raising will be to judgment. Well, they will experience what Revelation 20, 20 calls the second death. It says those who refuse to repent by faith and trust in Christ will be cast into the lake of fire along with Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. Church, hell is real and forever is a long time. But Jesus died so that no one has to experience the reality of hell. But you have to trust and believe. Trust him. Trust him. His crucifixion purchased your forgiveness if you believe. His death defeated death and Hades and made it possible for you and I to be present with God in heaven immediately when we die. And his resurrection, which we'll talk about next week, consummated the new creation that will one day be revealed and completely established upon his return. I hope you'll join us next week as we celebrate the fact, the truth of Jesus' resurrection. He lives, church. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for never wasting anything. It would be so easy to skip over your death and your burial and move right into the resurrection. But Father, even in something as horrible as Christ losing his life, as him being buried, put in a tomb, you even used that. You were active. Even when it looked like all hope was lost, you were doing work. I praise you for that, Lord. I pray that we would never lose hope. That no matter how well we can see you or sense you, that we would always know that you are working. Maybe in unseen, invisible ways, but you are doing work for your glory, for our good, and our joy. I pray, Father, that you would use this time, this weird time in our church's history where we're not able to gather, where Um, It's frustrating, Lord, where some of us are, are feeling loneliness like we never have. I pray, Father, that you would use this time, that you would reassure us that you're working, you're doing stuff, good stuff. Give us hope, Father. Help us endure. Lord, I pray that for those that haven't trust you, 
Lord, I pray that, that they would hear your call to them, that they would know you and love you in such a way that they would not have to experience the torment or the misery of hell. Thank you that you've made a way for anyone, for everyone, to live with you in your presence, experiencing your joy in the new heavens and the new earth, getting resurrected bodies because of what Christ did. Thank you, Father, that you know what it's like to be us in every single way. You even went so far as to die like we do, to experience death like we all will if we die before your coming. I praise you for walking in our shoes in every way possible. May that encourage us. May that give us courage in the face of death. Indeed, it has lost its sting. Thank you, Father, for removing it. We love you. We praise you. We long to gather together face to face, Lord. I pray that day would come sooner rather than later. In the meantime, encourage us. Be near to us. Speak truth to us. Help us speak true to others. We love you, Lord. It's your name we pray. Amen.